Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I feel like I'm living in someone else's nightmare. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I can't tune, but I can teach theory of tuning. <laughs> Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of defensive realism and existential anarchism. Today, we'll be talking about 1998's Dark City, directed by Alex Proyas, who had, just before this, directed The Crow, which, well, that would be kind of an interesting one for us to do. Okay, yeah. Yeah. In the next few weeks, we'll be talking about Apple TV's Foundation series and, praise Shai Halud, the Villeneuve edition of Dune. We always have lots of ideas. We love taking suggestions, and you can suggest things to us in a variety of ways. We are on Twitter. I am at Anna Marie Cox. He is at Dan Dresner. And we have a Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash space the nation. Oh, that Patreon page, Dan. It's special. What can people do on that Patreon page besides suggest things to us? Anna, what can't they do on that Patreon page? Uh, the most important thing is they can become a patron. And by becoming a patron, for as little as $3 a month, you can get things like swag, you can get early access to the podcast episodes. You can get access to our Discord channel, which features the other patrons who are a delightful bunch of people that have multiple conversations, some of which are about poli-sci and sci-fi, some of which are just about cute dogs. You can also They get also access- share recipes lately. Oh, this is yeah, good. there's a food channel. Excellent. You can also get access to our monthly uh, AMAs. Also, when we reach 250 patrons, and we are more than halfway there, uh, we will do another special... Also, uh, when we get to 250 patrons, uh, and we are more than halfway there, we will do another special patrons-only episode, which is a topic chosen by the patrons, much like we did recently when we hit 125. And now on to the main event of this episode. Dan, why are we talking about Dark City? We're doing this for several reasons, Anna. First, it features humans who are under the thumb of powerful beings who have the ability to alter the rules of the game. And this did beat The Matrix in two theaters by a year. So they even shared some sets. There is a rooftop scene in Dark City that you also see, I think, in the opening uh, scene of The Matrix. And there are folks out there who believe that this is the superior film. I believe including, at the time, Roger Ebert, who declared Dark City to be the best film of 1998. Also, this film stars Jennifer Connelly. And I accidentally had lunch with Jennifer Connelly one day, Anna. Um, so I always felt a special bond with her. Yeah, you know, Dan, I got to tell my Tony Romo story <laughs> in the last episode, so I feel like it's only fair. Do you want to do a little sidebar and tell us your Jennifer Connelly story? I will tell it. It is quicker than your story and not quite as cool. <laughs> but essentially, when I was in grad school at Stanford, uh, Jennifer Connelly was an undergraduate there briefly. There was a cafe in the political science department where I was getting my PhD, And it was not a very large cafe. And so the rule was at the noon hour when you were trying to get your lunch, you would usually plop your backpack down at a place so you could make, you know, save a seat. Then you would get in line, get the food and then sit down. So this is what I did. I plopped my backpack down, went, got my sandwich, plopped down. And this was the accepted norm. And I found I was sitting across from Jennifer Connelly uh, reading, I believe, Lysistrata. Because a good English major that she was. So, you know. I knew who she was. She knew that I knew who she was. But, like, I acted relatively cool. I just, you know, courteously said hello, got to my lunch. I remember because I was I was reading uh, Ken Waltz's Theory of International Politics. And at one point, I joked, what should we trade books, which she found extremely amusing. Hmm. The other amusing thing about this lunch was, again, just very civil, was how many of my grad school colleagues came over to talk to me. <laughs> during the lunch just sort of asking me casual questions yeah. and like the looks on their faces i might not have been completely chill but i was definitely more chill than the grandma colleagues who would come over to talk to me 
The important thing about this is that every time after that, I would bump into Jennifer Connelly on the campus at least once a month after that. And she always said hi to me and I always said hi to her. So she was a decent human being. And I did appreciate that. And she was, what, 12 when she filmed this? Like, no. She's, so she looks very young. I'll just say She that. looks very she young. Looks but I mean, very, yeah, she's, very young. She was in her 20s. When I she, know that. I, I, was, yeah, yeah. I was exaggerating for effect, Dan. I know. I know. Fair I was enough. exaggerating for effect. Yes. As for, you know, why I was interested in this movie, I wanted to see how it compared to The Matrix. I came away thinking they're, yes, of course, they ha- they share some themes and tropes, but they're trying to do really different things. I look forward mm-hmm. to talking about that. Yeah. Also, there is a TV series in the works. <laughs> really? Wow. All IP has happened before. Uh-huh. And all IP will happen again, Dan. I wonder if the creators of the show have no memory of the... <laughs> <laughs> or they have an imaginary memory. Or they there live in a go, world yes. where there was no dark city. That, that yes, memory exactly. is being erased. Maybe that's it. All right, Anna, let's get to the story behind the story. And Anna, you finally did the research for this. I know. We, were, we used to trade off, and then I had my shit happen in my real world, and uh, you took it over, and I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And as usual, not only did I do the research, but I actually found out too much. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so not surprisingly, Alex Proyas was able to make this film because of the success of The Crow, even mm. though people were really confused by it. <laughs> it was not an easy sell to studios. Also, kind of obviously, it it has some noir, you know, influences mm-hmm. uh, and some early cinema, early science fiction influences. The Maltese Falcon, M- Metropolis, and I would say the Five Thousand Fingers of Doctor T. Okay, I'm going to confess my ignorance because I don't even know. I've never heard of that film. Well, the Five Thousand Fingers of Doctor T. Dan um, is most famous for being a movie scripted by Doctor Seuss, Theodore Geisel, mm. and it's not very Doctor Seussy. <laughs> it's it's um, a little Fair bit enough. of a nightmare. A young boy is dreams of his piano practice, but it's kind of a hellish piano practice. Like oh. he, he's made to do all these exercises and has this very surreal quality. So it's like uh, a precursor to whiplash. <laughs> yes. Although, again, what it's really known for is its um, cinematography hmm. and the surrealist elements. So, Okay. The original concept was to take the point of view of the investigator. Played in, by William Hurt. In this or... Movie. Whoever the investigator was, because there is oh, an investigator yeah. that follows the plot, the original plot line. The oh. original plot line was the investigator to be driven crazy by a case that makes no sense. Oh, Walensky. Yes. Okay. Yes. Which does happen to Walensky. Yeah. And that the, a case that's so bizarre, it causes the detective to question his very reality. Huh. So that okay. does happen in the movie. Yeah. Uh, a note on Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> when he received the script, he assumed it was meant for his father, which... I think might be true. <laughs> One of the first things I wrote down was, wow, that's a baby doctor. <laughs> doesn't seem old enough to go to medical school. Doesn't seem old enough to have gone to medical school. Just quite young, really. But, you know, Proyas decided it worked because that way the character would have a future to look forward to. His mm. youth would make him want to change the situation more. So, oh, yeah, fair enough. All right, sure. Proyas was a fan of Richard O'Brien, who plays Mr. Hand, uh, from the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and indeed based the look of the character on the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which huh. is one of those influences you would not have guessed. No. I would not have guessed. No way. <laughs> would, not have, would not have put those two together. Feedback on early screenings were about what you'd expect. Um, 
the reactions were so dissimilar. This is from a, a Wikipedia entry. So dissimilar that Alex Proyas realized his film would never be universally appreciated or even understood. <laughs> so he was realistic. And also Proyas was at one of these screenings and he says, I knew I was in trouble when I looked across the aisle and saw a couple of guys in particular who were really not there. I assume he was not hallucinating uh, or having a fake memory, but just talking about their sort of presence as audience, right? Yeah. So Even in a pre-smartphone era, that does make sense. Right. Yes. Okay. Proyas also notes it was the first time he was ever told to dumb it down, like literally told to dumb a movie down. And he didn't think people really said that to directors, but I guess people really do. Hmm. And one of the ways they dumbed it down was to add Kiefer Sutherland's narration at the um, top. And okay. then it has a really interesting um, specific antecedent, which hmm. is the character of Dr. Schrieber, Kiefer Sutherland's baby doctor, is based on a real doctor, a German doctor, turn of the century, named Daniel Schrieber, who <laughs> wrote a book called Memoirs of My Nervous Illness, in what circumstance can a person deemed insane be detained in an asylum against his declared will? Mm. It was actually written to try and get him out of this asylum. He, he was a respected jurist in Germany and in middle age started to experience delusions, um, um. but was still pretty lucid and kept you know, his reasoning and intellect. So he wrote this book kind of just explaining what he was experiencing and actually did get out of the institution for about five years, hmm. managed his own schizophrenia, and then wound up going back and dying in an institution. The specific part of that book that Proyas pulled was this idea that there are fleetingly improvised men in the world, which is a wonderful phrase, uh, who are placed in Schrieber's life by God. They are miracles to interact with Schrieber. Um, while the rest of mankind slowly disappears. You can also see that as a matrixy type thing. Right? Yes. I mean, again, it's sort of, yeah, there are parallels. Yeah. And I, I would like to add that this argument that is made in the book about when do you put someone in an asylum if they know they're insane and they're lucid about their insanity, specifically schizophrenia, there's a great book by Esme Wang called The Collected Schizophrenias. Hmm. It's a beautiful memoir. She has schizophrenia. Oh, and wow is a best-selling author, uh, hmm. married, functions in the world, mm -hmm. and makes some really compelling arguments about deinstitutionalizing people who can manage in the world. I would also recommend, this is a slightly more mainstream choice, I guess, but Sylvia Nasser's uh, A Beautiful Mind, not the movie, the book, uh, a biography of John Nash, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia, had been institutionalized, I believe, for two decades, and then slowly emerged even though his hallucinations never completely disappeared, but he did learn how to control them and was eventually able to participate in uh, academic life again. Yeah, that's Esme Wang's experience too. It's just fascinating yeah. to, and it, it relates to this book. It relates to The Matrix, it perhaps relates to all of us, which is this idea that you know what you're seeing isn't there. Mm -hmm. right. And that you must navigate your world denying certain parts of your reality. Right. It's, it's really interesting cool stuff but let's talk about this movie <laughs> and not other books that we have read Fair enough. <laughs> yes we've done enough showing off on us so let's, let's get we, let's we get read a lot yeah we're just i'm just saying you know yeah. let's talk about this movie dan all right please let's, the plot. let's get let's get to act one so you had a bad day meet john murdoch who wakes up in a bathtub suffering from amnesia 
The phone rings, and a man who says he's a doctor tells him he needs to get out of the room. There's a dead prostitute in the room, so the doc has a fair point. Murdoch escapes just as some bald men, who we will call the Strangers, are trying to get him. During his escape, he displays uh, some psychokinetic powers, in fact, the same psychokinetic powers that the Strangers themselves seem to possess. Super weird. Back to that murdered prostitute. Uh, <laughs> Detective Frank Bumstead uh, starts to detect and sees that the room was, in fact, rented by Murdoch. John goes to the automat to collect his wallet and finds out where he lives. Some beat cops give him some trouble, but a prostitute says he's her John, and they leave him be. John, in fact, goes back to the prostitute's red-lit room, worried that he'll kill again. But he doesn't, and makes his way home, where he greets his Shantusi wife, Emma. According to her, he left three weeks ago because she'd been having an affair. Bumstead then tries to arrest him, but he escapes by, again, using his psychokinetic powers to create an exit where none existed before. Anna, on the one hand, some of the shots at the beginning of this film are legitimately amazing. Uh, they're very, very good. And on the other hand, we are told from the get-go that aliens are afoot and they're doing bad things to humans. And I kind of feel like that gave away too much at the beginning. What say you? I say that Alex Proyas would probably agree. Mm -hmm. I, I think he intended the movie to have a lot more mystery to it. Mm -hmm. And as I was saying earlier, they added that narration because of the test screenings. I would say, yes, the movie starts out already pretty beautiful, mm -hmm. but I found myself a little bored um, mm -hmm. during this, this first section because mm -hmm. it's just such familiar noir tropes. Like, yeah. it's just kind of a beat-for-beat noir-y thing, mm -hmm. but it looks good. William Hurt is great. Rufus Sewell is great. Jennifer Conley is great. It, it is a, uh, I was happy to continue watching it, I will right. say. But I do agree. I think the tension could have been ratcheted up by not giving out so much information. Exactly. All right, let us move on to act two, trading places in space. John follows Dr. Schreiber and notices that at midnight, everyone else goes to sleep and the buildings start to move. The strangers also inject new memories into some people and change their clothes, turning, for example, a blue-collar family into a wealthy one and literally expanding their small tenement apartment into a colossal mansion. The strangers realize that Murdoch can tune, or also physically alter reality, and decide to inject uh, the memories that were intended for Murdoch into one of their own, Mr. Hand, to see if those memories can be used to find him. Instead, all they do is make Mr. Hand want to kill prostitutes. <laughs> John visits his uncle Carl. Looking at slides of his childhood, he realizes that stuff from his past is not adding up. Carl calls Emma, and she and Bumstead arrive just in time to save John from yet another attack by the strangers. Anna, one area where I do think this film uh, actually surpasses The Matrix is William Hurt's character of Detective Bumstead. As we noted last week, The Matrix was at best ambivalent in its attitude toward other humans that are caught up in The Matrix. In Bumstead, and more obviously Walensky, the detective who preceded him, who lost his mind, as it were, this film manages to convey the cost of being subjects of this experiment. I really did think the most affecting scene in this whole movie was William Hurt and Jennifer Connelly in a car talking about their memories and how they don't quite add up. What do you think? I love it when William Hurt doesn't phone it in. Yes. Uh, he can Sometimes phone, he does. phone it Sometimes, into things. Yeah. And it's still, he's still a great actor. Yeah. Uh, his phoning it in is better than a lot of people's being there. Mm -hmm. But he's definitely 
there for this. He yeah. committed to this role. And he's so compelling when he does that mm-hmm. and so real. I mean, he, he brings, again, it's a cliche, but that existential exhaustion of the noir detective. Right. You know, and the cynicism that's also somehow limbed with uh, belief in justice, right? With the belief in doing the right thing. Yes. Doing the right thing. Yeah. As far as the film's attitude or the universe's attitude towards its subject, yeah, this is where it's very different. Mm-hmm. I have a lot to say about this. Do you want me to do it now? <laughs> I think yes. Go ahead. Okay. This is appropriate. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So one thing is the experiments are just really, really different. <laughs> In the Matrix, it's not so much an experiment. It's a holding pattern for cattle. Right. Right. There, like, there are different purposes in terms of what's being done. So right. with the Matrix, it's not an experiment. The Matrix is, how can we keep these people in the Matrix? That's it. That's all they right. care about. Right, that's it. Yeah. And this is an experiment. I think it's a dumb one, <laughs> and it's poorly designed. <laughs> We're going to get to that a little bit later in the show, but okay. yes, I completely agree with you on that assessment. Keep going. But one of the ways it's dumb is it's designed to fail. Mm-hmm. It, what they want to happen is for people to realize they have agency, which is the opposite of what's supposed to happen in the Matrix, right? right. Mm-hmm. In the Matrix, the machines want to do anything that they have to do to keep people from realizing that they're people. Mm-hmm. And in Dark City, the very thing that the strangers are trying to do is to figure out what makes people people, to see if they, if we are just the sum of our memories or if there is some essential self. Right. Right. And I think because of that agency piece, it's just it has such a different sort of message Hmm. than The Matrix. I was thinking about how this movie would not red pill. Not only is there no red pill, but I don't think you could use this movie as a rallying cry for teenage boys. You know? Yeah, that's a safe (laughs) statement. Like there's no real heroics in it. I mean, John... Murdoch is different, mm-hmm. but it's actually, he's not really presented as like a chosen one, you know? I, I don't, yes. I, I'm not, I this think is, it's, they say it's, they say it's, oh, it must be genetic. They, you know? they, they, they keep saying it can't happen and yet it does is the way it was, was what I recall. Um, right. But, but it's also, not like, he doesn't get the treatment that Neo gets. Let's just say that. Right. Well, I think the, the other, I think important thing is that, and here maybe it's, it's that I like the Matrix more. Neo goes on a journey. Yeah. Intellectually. Sure. That John Murdoch does not. Yeah. And and I think that's the other difference. In, in terms it's of funny. I think that's maybe why I like this movie a little more, even though it's not as entertaining to me. Huh. Interesting. But it, it's because it is more existentialist, right? Like hmm. Neo is given a hero's journey. That's the right. thing that turns on teenage boys and some teenage girls, I guess, which is like, oh, I want to be like Neo. I want to be the chosen one. Like uh, I'm smarter than everybody else. Mm-hmm. With John, I don't think he's portrayed as being smarter. He's no, not like, actually, he's, it, it, he's not that bright, frankly. Like, right, there are multiple people constantly telling him what's going on, and he just refuses to acknowledge it. Exactly. So he's not someone that you would want to be, really. Right. I mean, he yeah. has this amazing power, and I am really curious what a sequel to this movie would be like <laughs> if you give this kind of random person all this power. But he isn't really a hero. And also, there, there's no, like, resistance Mm-hmm. to this and also at any point one of the characters one of the people in the dark city could develop agency hmm. like if well they clearly ca- some of them do walensky yeah. did for example right. we know right. that yes and it may drive them crazy but mm-hmm. they can come to see where they really are 
And the other thing that I think makes it really different is the Matrix is so fucking ambitious, mm. right? Like what the Matrix says is that reality everywhere mm. is a construct, is a simulation. What Dark City says is there are these beings conducting an experiment mm-hmm. on this spaceship or planet or spoiler alert um spaceship or planet or whatever it is mm-hmm. like there is a reality beyond you know and yeah. that we this is just a single experiment right there are other humans elsewhere that are not having the same experience fair enough as far as we know yeah as far as we know whereas in the matrix it's it's a universalizing mm-hmm. thing you can't have someone be like i think we're living in dark city man you know like <laughs> Let me put it this way. The, it, again, to, to, to use some social science language, the Matrix is about Foucauldian power. It's about like the idea that power is everywhere and you cannot escape it. Dark City is about domination. Yeah. It's about the what Stephen Lukes would refer to as the third face of power. It's about the idea that, you know, there is this overarching actor that can like condition everyone. But the reality is real. So like that that's the other way I would distinguish between. We're gonna talk about that level of power later, I hope, because mm-hmm. I have some thoughts. Okay. <laughs> I think that's sort of my real kind of points of difference between this and The Matrix. I think they're pretty important. I just think the movies are just trying to do really different things. Hmm. And I also think, as as I said earlier, The Matrix is a more enjoyable movie to watch. It's better Hmm. action. It's got more quippy stuff in it. It's fun to watch. This is not so fun to watch. It's mm. it's interesting, you yeah. know. No, this is not. Like, wait, this is not a bad movie. I want to be very no, clear no, no. It's it not. But it's good. it's you know, it's just it's thoughtful. Yeah. I never felt compelled to watch it again after I saw it in 1998. Right. Which I've seen The Matrix probably like half a dozen times. Yes, you know? that's. I, I, I I'm in the same boat. All right. So, Dan, uh, let's go ahead and finish the plot. I I believe you have a lot to lay out. Yes, let's go to Act 3, release the exposition. Bumstead interrogates John, uh, but John keeps pointing out inconsistencies in their world, like how you get to places like Shell Beach. Then he levitates something, which Bumstead does notice. The strangers arrive to the police station to collect Murdoch, but discover that Bumstead has instead taken him and gone to see Dr. Schrieber. Schrieber tries to inject Murdoch with the world's most hideous-looking syringe. And he says we'll explain everything. Bumstead stops him, and he and Murdoch demand that Schrieber take them to Shell Beach, a place where John ostensibly grew up and keeps haunting his memories. Schrieber dumps the exposition. So, the strangers are a race of dying aliens that possess a collective memory or shared memory. They think that the human soul can save them from dying. They abducted a city's population and are conducting experiments, mixing and matching memories to see what causes a person's nature. In Dr. Schrieber's own words, they think they can find out souls if they know how our memories work. Murdoch is an anomaly because he woke up when Schrieber was in the process of trying to imprint his identity as a murderer. That's why the strangers are so curious about him. Anna, I have a few questions about this (laughs) world building. So, let's just go through them. The strangers can tune... Which means they can alter physical reality, but they have to handcraft artisanal diaries, keepsakes, and social security cards. Mm. Um, they have to dress and shave people. At one point, one of the strangers tells John they use the dead as vessels. Okay, but are all the dead vessels men? Because it seems like all the strangers are men. They're averse to water and sunlight. So they decide to visit Earth as a way of <laughs> getting test subjects? Why do the cars and trains stop um, when 
people fall asleep. That doesn't make any sense. The rules of this universe don't add up, Anna. I agree. Okay. And I have a theory, which is that the strangers are just kind of incompetent. <laughs> that would be fair. And that's sort of part of the story because this whole experiment is insanely inefficient. Like, there's the whole manufacturing the keepsakes part of it. Yeah. And then there's the exchanging people, like, on a one-by-one -one basis. Like, mm -hmm. that's, take, that's a lot of labor. That's right. just... But, like, just constantly schlepping bodies. And also, right. like... Like, there's a, there's a scene where at one point to find his Uncle Carl, John goes and, like, pulls a page from the phone book. And I'm like, you would have to rejigger that phone yeah, book every yeah. goddamn time. <laughs> how do you do that? Do you, like, yeah. bring yellow pages in it? Like, I, I don't know how this works. Yeah, it, it's they're not consistent. And that necessarily, that's not part of the story. But I do think on some level their incompetence and their lack of imagination, for lack of a better word, yeah. is kind of part of the story. Like, this yeah. is a bad experiment. Right, and you we know? will get to that again, but yes, yeah, it, it yeah. is not a good experiment, and that is one of the reasons why people can shake it off. The mm -hmm. other question I have, Dan, is: Do people who live in rural areas not have souls? <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, I get the noir thing. Like, you're mm -hmm. going to make a noir movie; it has to be in a dark city. But the strangers might have really missed out on some good data. Again, I you don't. Know? There's sample bias. There is sample bias <laughs> afoot in this bad experiment. That is a fair way of, of pointing That's it That's right. Out. Yes, also, I no consent. It. So, you know. Uh, oh, no, I don't, no. You could not get away with this, Dan. No. Don't, I, don't I, try it. Don't yes, try it. Yes. All right. Moving on. Let's complete with Act 4. Shut it down. Shut it down forever. Murdoch, Bumstead, and Shriver get to Shell Beach, which is just a sign saying Shell Beach behind a brick wall. Furious, Murdoch and Bumstead grab some sledgehammers that are just lying around. That is convenient to make the keepsakes. Also, just put some sledgehammers near the wall that you're not supposed to break. Good. Good. Incompetent. I'm telling you, they're incompetent. That's a fair point. So they hammer on that wall and they see they are, they are in fact, in outer space. The strangers then show up. Bumstead tries to fight them off with his gun, but he and a stranger fall through the hole and die in outer space. <laughs> I have to say, I'm sorry. Like, yeah. That made me laugh. Like, it's just such a, like, it's not very good special effects, number one. And number right. two, it's like, wow, okay. Like, it's, I get, it's true. You don't see it coming. I will say that. Yes. You don't see, like, space coming. That's <laughs> true. Of all the things you think might be behind that wall, I remember this from the first time I saw it. It was yeah. not space. Yes. Like, existential void? Sure. But space. but space. It was actual space, yes. Like actual outer space did not see coming. There we go. All right, so the strangers take Murdoch to Tuning Central and order Schrieber to imprint Murdoch with their collective memories in the hopes that he becomes one of them. Instead, Schrieber injects him with his own cocktail that he'd been trying to do for the entire movie, enabling Schrieber to, in this world, essentially know Kung Fu or figure out how to tune properly, as it were. He and Mr. Book have a big, very silly tuning fight. It involves a lot of staring. Yes. It's, just lots of, it's heavy staring. Staring and just floating levitation. John wins, uh, enabling him to be the sole power in Dark City. John, however, was too late to stop Emma from being newly imprinted as Anna, thereby losing her memory of loving John. John starts to tune, adding a beach, adding sunlight. He goes to Shell Beach, where he encounters a dying Mr. Hand, the person who had been imprinted with his memories. John explains to him that they'd been looking in the wrong place for the soul. Then he sees Emma slash Anna on the pier, makes small talk, meets cute, and they agree to walk to Shell Beach, presumably with their romance uh, rekindled. 
Anna, perhaps the biggest difference just on the surface level between this film and The Matrix is the last 30 minutes. The Matrix's last half hour is amazing and still holds up in terms of the fight scenes, the fight choreography, all of that. The big tuning fight in Dark City, I don't think was very good when I first watched it, and it's gotten worse. Or am I wrong? Oh, God. Dan, don't ask me. Sometimes I I know you're asking me leading questions, but sometimes... I mean, no shit. Yeah. Like, it's terrible. There's no fighting. Number yes. one, there's no fighting. <laughs> it's just staring. There's just lots of staring. There's no actual physical contact. Right. It's right. kind of crazy. And also, like, in addition to the convenient sledgehammers, I was thinking, like, why did they give the cops in Dark City real guns? Right, so because they... Bumstead actually kills a few of these yeah, strangers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a valid point. Yeah, but they are not smart. I'm telling you. No, like, they're, they're not. Just not that smart. We're going to get into that, yes. I don't buy that they have a collective memory. No, that made no fucking sense whatsoever. I agree with that. And again, this is another... They have different characters. They're literally... They have different characters. Right. Right? They're not all, like, functioning the same person. Right. It's not like the board. Actually, that's an answer to their fucking experiment. (laughs) (laughs) The secret was the the individuality was the friends you made along the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they're conducting a natural experiment. They supposedly all have the same memories, and yet they have different personalities. What do you know? Yeah. (laughs) God. Dumbest aliens, man. Yeah, it was not a... I think it was a Goodwill Hunting was another film that, like, originally had, like, a sort of... The original version of that screenplay, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, like, had some, like, spy story that was, like, framing around it. (laughs) And apparently when they showed it, to, brought it to Gus Van Zandt, Gus Van Zandt said, no, no, get rid of that crap. The the real good movie is the, the psychiatry stuff. I, I I understand you needed a master narrative, but the alien part of it made no sense to me. I think it would have been interesting to make the movie without them, for sure. Yeah. To just have this suggestion that reality is somehow an experiment. Right. Uh, right? Like more mystery about what was going on. That's that we don't know who's conducting it or why, because that's where the movie falls apart. Both yes. the who's conducting it and why they're doing it. Yes. Yes. You know, that's where you start to get the, get to all of the questions that we have that have no answers. <laughs> Maybe that's because it's an experiment and we're going crazy and we should question our reality. Yeah. I do kind of forgive this movie for a lot though. I, mm-hmm. I will say, especially on the world building front, because I don't mean this as a denigration. It's a smaller movie than The Matrix. Yeah. Like, it, it is both more intimate, mm-hmm. sort of in its characters, and in its ambitions. And if you look at it as a noir and not as an experiment in existential dread. Right. Well, actually, noir is an experiment in existential dread. Yeah, if you look at it as just noir and not like a commentary on our existence, I would mm-hmm. say. No, actually, that's not right either. <laughs> Noir is a comment on our existence, and it's not a, such a, it's a pretty dark comment. But Noir can contain that commentary in its own plot line. Right. The futility of justice, the futility mm-hmm. of existence, you know, the way we are all interchangeable. The deeper, darker like, forces in the world, yeah. That is Noir, mm-hmm. and you don't need, like, a lot of string pulling to make it happen. Like, you might have <laughs> one character, you know, like in Chinatown, but, like, it's mostly just implied that we're all kind of victims of circumstance. Right. And I, I feel like that noir within this plot, like we're saying, is the good movie. Yeah. I would also add, like, this 
it's sort of a similar theme in that we've talked a fair amount about the cheesy special effects. There are also some legitimately interesting special effects in this film. Like when they constantly adjust the city, that actually was that holds up better than I was expecting. So like that's part of the the oddity of this film. There are some parts that are legitimately compelling. It's just the problem is there are also the cheesy parts and you can't get rid of those things. Oh, Dan, speaking of cheese, <laughs> Dan, yes? Anna, is there IR in this movie? Anna, no matter how much I try to tune, there is not, in fact, a lot of IR in this. Film. <laughs> what there is, however, is a lot of piss poor social science. So the entire premise of this film, noir elements aside, is that aliens will figure out the source of the human soul by abducting people, extracting their memories, mixing and matching them, and then changing the memories and structures at midnight to see how they change their behavior. Let's put aside that this would never get past a human subjects committee. It's obviously unethical, but to be fair, the strangers don't care about that. Even if you were to allow this to occur, it is god-awful science. <laughs> it is so bad. As we have noted, I yes. will say, Dan, you is, should you, get into detail on this. But let me be explicit about why. Like, you know, first of all, the advantage of the experimental method in the sciences is that you can run the same experiment while only tweaking one variable or factor to see how doing that alters the outcome. That is not what the strangers are doing. They're changing an awful goddamn lot every night. We see buildings rise and fall. We see multiple things change. You're creating too many independent variables when you do that to determine the source of whatever causation. <laughs> All right? There's insufficient degrees of freedom is the, the language that you would use in terms of trying to test. They're changing things every night. All right? You're not allowing their experiment to run. You know, it's not even 24 hours because apparently it's midnight like every hour, basically, in this <laughs> world. Um, so there's no way to judge sources of human behavior in that source of a time span. Also, they keep killing people, you know, which beyond just being morally reprehensible, how many test subjects do they have lying around? It's a bit of a thing. You know, they keep saying they occupy the vessels of dead people. I kept wondering, how many test subjects have they gone through? This is like not great. Do people have children? Also, that's a factor. Do people age? I think we saw like a baby carriage at one point. I, but you know, what, what, how long is this experiment? Yeah, I don't know. On? It's very strange. Yeah, let me yeah. put it this way. The Mortimer brothers in Trading Places, the film with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd, are better social scientists than these schmucks. They deserve to die. All right. So there. <laughs> like Anna, I agree with you. They were bad, incompetent scientists. And that's what you know, they got what they deserved. Sorry. Okay. I just, I really, we, I, we are on the same page. Yes, that. I agree. But this leads to the next part of the conversation. So, Anna, Dan, did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in this film? Well, I always do, Dan. I mean, yes. I can find something. Yeah. It is interesting to me that while there are apparently paychecks and bills and wallets mm -hmm. in this society, in this experiment, there's a. Uh, it doesn't actually happen. Like there's not a lot of actually exchange of goods or compensation for labor taking place, especially since the days are like two hours long. Well, he's got to pay. Right? It does start with, with a hotel bill. Right, overdue. right, right, but, right. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but we never, there's no indication of like what the lab, labor scale is. True. Like yes. what, and also there is this weird scene when the working class family becomes rich. Right. And Dr. Schreiber says, hilariously, you know, the rich get richer. <laughs> But it seems to point out... But he out, wasn't rich in the first place. That was yeah, actually, I, like, it, wrong. It, it, but yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
and it also kind of posits that our circumstances are just completely random. Mm-hmm. Like anyone can become rich, anyone can become poor, and it are not, in fact, a result of how much or how little we are compensated for our labor. So that's weird to me. <laughs> yeah. I did have a thought, though, uh-huh. that insofar as this movie is a commentary on capitalism, that the real rentier class in this movie isn't those temporarily rich people, but the strangers themselves. Yes. I'm giving they two are the up. owners of the property. Yeah. And they, like our ruling class, are running a long-running experiment to locate and extract the human soul. To conclude, Dan. Mm-hmm. Money is a collective delusion. <laughs> rest of my case. Yes. Oh wait! Uh, oh, it's still falling! Oh my god, it's still falling because the city's being rebuilt. Uh, what, what happened? There's a tuning fight going on, and things yes. are exploding. <laughs> it is time for the debris field, Anna. This is where we talk about the stuff we didn't talk about earlier. Uh, Dan, why don't you go first? Okay, a couple things. First of all, again, part of this, to be fair, is the sort of strange nature of, of this city, but, like, everyone seems perfectly cool with having midnight appointments, which, again, like, not something I would think about. Like, yes, go see a doctor at midnight. Of course, everyone does that. That's a little weird. I did like the creepy and clicking noises that the strangers made when they communicated with each other. That was sufficiently creepy. The Jennifer Connelly character, uh, how do I put this? <laughs> um She's, she's supposed to be a, a singer in the, the movie. There is no way that was her singing. I don't know for sure, but like... I, It was not, Dan. Yes, okay, it was that, not. That I can confirm. Sense. Yes. And also, the last thing I guess I would say, Jennifer Connelly is, is gorgeous. Rufus Sewell, I believe, is, is handsome. And I regret to report that as near as I could figure out, there was zero chemistry between the two of them. In some ways, that was part of, I think, another problem with the film is that there was supposed to be this sort of love interest between the two of them. And I just did not buy it in any way. And especially, again, compared to The Matrix, you know, if you look at Neo and Trinity, there is chemistry between Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss. There wasn't, in my opinion, between Jennifer Connelly and Rufus Sewell. I could be wrong about this, you know, but th- those are the things. Especially since, supposedly, in the context of the movie, it's that great love they have for each other that helps at least John realize mm-hmm. that everything's fake. Right. And, exactly. and that he can change things because yes. that love is real. Right. But no, I don't think so. That love, if anything in the movie, seems like it was generated by false memories. No. And let me put it this way. Again, in some ways, this points out William Hurt as an actor is very good. And also he makes everyone better. As I said, Jennifer Connelly's best scene in this film is when he's in the she's in the car talking to William Hurt. I felt more of an emotional connection between those two than I did between Rufus Sewell's character and and Connelly. It's a conversation for another time, Dan. But I am so fascinated by actors like William Hurt who can do that. Yeah. Who make everyone better. And It's sort of like the Tony Romo conversation in that I just, how does that happen? And what does that feel like? Yeah. You know? Okay, so my things in the debris field. The life of the others seems pretty miserable to me. Mm -hmm. Like they're in Taylorite factories doing piecework. That doesn't seem like fun. No. (laughs) (laughs) That seems like a weird way for aliens that are supposedly all powerful to spend their time. No, it's even more, there's far more drudgery with them than it is with the humans. It's very strange. Yes. And again, the experiment is poorly designed, poorly run, <laughs> kind of pointless. Yeah. And it's not completely clear to me that having a soul would be the thing that extends a lifespan. Yeah, medically, that doesn't make much sense to me. No, no, no. I agree. That's like, you know, 
I, I'm pretty sure there are lots of medical doctors that believe in the soul, but no one is going to like diagnose patients like, yeah, you know, the problem is you don't have a soul. That's, that's take two souls and call me in the morning. Exactly. There yeah. you go. It's it's <laughs> it just no. It, what it is the connection? Sense. That would be an interesting thing to explore. Ooh, that would be like nice. it does take one human take their soul, then have another human with a soul who lives longer, right? <laughs> That's, I guess we can. Like I, you, know what? you know what? We have ever. a natural. We have a natural experiment running with with uh, Donald Trump. There we go. So <laughs> Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, maybe even. So yeah, let's speak in a comedy. That was ah. a good like comedy segue. But I'm, we're going to talk about Ted Lasso. As always, we'll start with the plot. Anna, what happened in episode nine of Ted Lasso season two? Oh, Dan. <laughs> Anyone who's seen this episode will understand the frustration that I already feel and that I know you will evince soon. Yeah. It's a wacky episode. Mm-hmm. I usually warn people about spoilers. I would say just don't watch this episode. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to somewhat summarize it, but I kind of refuse to. Uh, it's Beard-centric. And I love Coach Beard. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure if this was an homage or a punishment for that character mm-hmm. it is an homage to the martin scorsese classic after hours right the show uh, the title of this episode is i believe called coach beard after hours in fact yes uh, in which a hapless griffin dune gets odysseyed and escaping soho mm-hmm. beard helps the richmond super fans get into a fancy club he loses his pants gains some pants runs from a bully meets some other bullies gets saved by a bully he goes to a rave i think yes. and we learn in that jane has never said I love you until the exact night that Beard loses his phone. What do you know? And then she does. And then is kind of cruel and reactive when he doesn't respond right away instead of, say, concerned. Mm. (laughs) Like, you know, if you text someone I love you and they don't respond, to go to where the fuck are you (laughs) is weird. All right. This might sound... And then they... Whatever. He sees Jane, but I, I am now definitely team break up your team dump I jane i assume i'm team yes. jump jane yeah. so let me put it this way like I, this might be an old the old fogey i mean like it's the first time you should say i love you via text it's weird and it's i also will add so there is a, a fun confession in the previous episode mm-hmm. i believe that mm-hmm. uh, coach beard admits he coached a game on mushrooms yes that's correct and yes. i wondered this entire episode <laughs> that would explain a lot if he is still on mushrooms mm-hmm. so fair enough what did you like about this episode, Dan? Not a lot, Anna, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Um, to be fair, this might be because the only thing I remember about watching After Hours, I think I watched it once in the 80s, and the only memory I have of it was when I watched it, I felt an aching desire to go to bed. And I just <laughs> wanted Griffin Dunn to be able to go to bed. Like, it was it was just not a pleasant experience in terms of that. There are a few things I like. It's true. This episode was an hour long. Yeah, yeah. Like, I... But checked my watch. Right. And, and we should also, to be fair, <laughs> neither of us were, I don't think we're huge fans of the show. I think you liked this episode slightly better than I did. But also, this was one, along with the Christmas episode, this was an episode that they sort of had to do on the spot. Apparently, Apple originally contracted 10 episodes this season for Ted Lasso and then sort of changed saying, no, no, we actually want 12. So they added the Christmas episode, which is kind of a standalone episode, and also this one, also really pretty much a standalone episode. You can skip this and you're not going to miss anything in terms of the overarching plot. The things I did like, yelling at Thierry Henry, who was one of the commentators, I'd, anyone should be able to yell at Thierry Henry. I, I just like that. And the fact that he winds up, Coach Beard winds up running into him at the very end. I liked the big guy on the scooter winding up helping 
Coach Beard, anything that subverts my expectations, I appreciate. And that actually did, as it turns out, all he was is a, a worried, expected father. I did like Coach Beard letting the superfans onto the pitch. That was a rare case where I think there had been characters over two years that finally get some sort of payoff. Perfectly fine. Yeah, that's it. I didn't like anything else. Uh, <laughs> I, I really did dislike it. Let me this way. I think I've liked this season a little more than you have, but I intensely dislike this episode. Right. Anna, what about you? So... I have not enjoyed the comedy this season very much. I did not really enjoy this episode, but it had one of my favorite lines of the entire season, uh, which has nothing to do with character or plot in the show. But Beard has this exchange with a lady in red who's, you know, the femme fatale for the episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's talking about the decency laws in England, and she says, an exposed ass can bring down the monarchy itself. And he says, how dare you speak of Prince Andrew that way? It's a little bit of a deep cut. (laughs) But (laughs) pretty good, yes. If you're an Epstein stan, you know what we're talking about here. (laughs) I also liked the line, people come and go in my life, and I've always kept a pair of trousers. It's this episode tries so hard for absurdity. Yeah. It is sometimes kind of painful. And what actually makes it are the small touches of absurdity. Yes. And that was a nice small touch of absurdity. I do agree. That's a good point. Yeah. And I'll say I still like Coach Beard. Mm -hmm. And I think he remains still a bit mysterious, despite spending this whole episode with him. Right. So I I think what encapsulates what I did not like about this episode is that there's a scene where Coach Beard gets the superfans into this private club and they wind up playing pool with some posh uh, Oxford ponces. And the Oxford guys are like, clearly don't think these people are, they think they're faking it. And so starts trying to challenge Coach Beard, because he claims he's professor at Merton College. And Beard, of course, surprises them by actually being perfectly fine in terms of dealing with. And then he explains how he was able to do that. And I'm like, I don't want to know how. This this is with the kind of thing where like, there, I. Yeah, you're right. Of, yeah. It, it would have been better to, to just think, oh, wow, Beard knows a lot about exactly. Oxford. Which is, impl- which is entirely plausible, because one of the, the things you always see Coach Beard doing is buried in a book. And God knows I yep. identify with that. It was entirely plausible that he would have just known that. I don't want to know why. And so, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the way I would put it. I, I agree. I, I yeah. do think, like I said, I think that there's still mystery to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm thankful for that because I, I do want to see the character again. But this was a long time with that character. I joked before it was, the episode's an hour long. It's not an hour long. It feels like an, more it than an hour. It feels very long. Yeah. It feels very, very long. Yeah. Dan, what did you learn? <laughs> I learned that Coach Beard is a better character in small doses. Again, this is not a knock on Brendan Hunt or the character. I I think he adds something to Ted Lasso. But that said, he's better in small doses and Ted Lasso should never do this again. I wholeheartedly agree. What did I learn? You might want to know. I do want to know. You could ask me. Anna, what did you learn? What did I learn? Coach Beard is a believer in the simulation hypothesis, as discussed in Mm -hmm. our Matrix episode. Mm-hmm. I also learned that Oxford graduates are idiots, or at least real <laughs> assholes. I, I don't know how this could be true. <laughs> I also learned that anything can be funny if you speed it up and put Benny Hill music under it. That is correct, actually. That is a valid point. Yes, that's true. I want to point out, this is an episode also without dads. Well, there's one expected dad, to be fair. There's but... one expected dad. You're right. Yeah. But it's like there's no dad yeah. shit. Yes. You know? Yeah. Like, it's just, it's pretty dad-free for a show that's so obsessed with dads. Mm-hmm. So. Yes, fair enough. 
All right, I think that is about it. I will remind people that they can become patrons at patreon.com slash space the nation. You can follow us on Twitter at Anna Marie Cox at Dan Dresner. Please join us. We love doing this and we wouldn't do it if it weren't for y'all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, pay a visit to the Patreon page or just tell your friends and neighbors, write a review, uh, give us a rating. That would help as well. Until next time. Keep this channel open for 